Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I'm Judy and I'm from Ireland and not so sure this will translate to everybody over here, but uh, here goes anyway. I'm from Galway, but this is uh, based in Dublin, so we use a Dublin accent. Uh, so this guy wants to go on holidays and he's going to bring his missus with him and he goes into his uh, friend and he's like, here, Tony, Tony, I'd like to go on holidays to Spain, but I'm just a bit worried because I don't speak Spanish. And he says, there's no bother, no bother. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is speak really loud and really slow. And they'll get it. They'll get it. No problem at all. So the guy goes over on his holidays, walks into the bar and says, Hello, I'd like to order a pint of Heineken and a pint of Hep for the missus. And the guy goes, Okay. They sit down and they start to drink. And he's like to his uh, wife, you know something that was a bit strange your man understood me it's really easy to speak to Spanish so he goes back up to the bar again and went uh, where are you from and the guy goes Dublin and then he goes back so why are we speaking Spanish I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from singer-songwriter Julie Feeney, who is pretty dang Irish, it turns out. As Patty's pig. What? As they say. Coming up, <laughs> famed street artist Shepard Ferry, the standard for greatness, rednecks with stir sticks, a menu library, and you make the sun fry. Not me. Really? But somebody's certainly doing it. Well, they're in trouble. First, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. The news of the world is to close, and this Sunday will be the last edition. Casey Anthony found not guilty of killing little Kaylee. In the South Korean city of Pyeongchang, being awarded the 2018 Winter Olympics. Now for something you haven't heard, we're speaking with LA Times columnist Pat Morrison, who also has her own show on KPCC in LA. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? I'm going to be dismaying the multitudes with the story about the Indiana Department of Education saying that schools don't have to teach kids how to write in cursive anymore. What? Whoa. Yeah. And Indiana seems like such a fun word to write in cursive. That's true. And, and <laughs> just imagine all those aunts and uncles and grandparents expecting thank you notes. Not going to happen. No, they'll just be <laughs> typed. I don't know. There's part of me, though, that kind of feels like good riddance. I never, even today, I don't think I know how to write a capital S. Uh, it's, it's about discipline. It's about the elegance of it. It's about signing checks and endorsing checks. <laughs> Guys, come on. It's true. But here's an, another upside is aunts and uncles will now have a secret language. Kids won't be able to read with it. <laughs> It'll be like this? pig Latin in front of your mother. Sure. That's right. But there's something so wonderfully controlled about putting those joined letters together. Uh, How can you deprive kids of that? Well, now you can set up your own cursive service, Pat, and make extra money, maybe. Yeah, by like doing calligraphy and stuff. That's right, while listening to a Victrola. <laughs> Pat Morrison, thanks for the small talk. Come on, you, you really want to see Thomas Jefferson laboring over the Declaration of Independence <laughs> using the delete key? <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is waffle mix to which we add liquor instead of milk. 
No Bloody Mary necessary. Time saver. Nice. Uh, First, the history. This week, back in 1928, an inventor set the standard by which all greatness is judged. Our friend Michelle Philippi is here with the story. Otto Rowetter was the greatest thing before sliced bread. Because, see, he invented the commercial bread slicing machine. Before Otto, loaves were sold whole. Housewives had to carve off dozens of slices a day, and the slices were uneven. Otto's machine did the chore for them. Still, bakers were skeptical. They figured sliced bread would go stale faster. Plus, Otto's machine made pretty thin slices. Surely that would lead families to consume a loaf more slowly. Sales would be ruined. But in July 1928, Missouri's Chillicothe Bakery took a risk on the machine, and it paid off. Their sliced bread flew off shelves quicker than it could go stale. Better yet, it turned out consumers actually ate sliced loaves faster. Because when they finished a slice, they could easily grab another. Soon Americans came to count on sliced bread. Maybe too much. During World War II, when the government banned it to save wrapping paper, the New York Times ran a letter from a horrified housewife who said sliced bread helped maintain, quote, the morale and saneness of a household. So that was the history. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Jim McCullough. He is the owner of Wabash Barbecue in Chillicothe, Missouri. Jim, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? Well, we came up with one that we call the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> All right. that's That sounds fitting. What What's in it? Being the uh, rednecks that we are here in Missouri, <laughs> we make it uh, by the five-gallon uh, buckets full because we always have a lot of friends come by when we want to make that. I like it. We use a, a fifth of Stoli's vodka, uh-huh. a fifth of Stoli's raspberry vodka. Then we put uh, six Budweiser's in it. <laughs> And then we have two to one uh, raspberry lemonade and regular lemonade. And then you just mix it with the butt of a gun or something? or? Um, well, we use a stir stick. Okay. But when we first came up with that, we probably used the, uh, our hands. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a great summer drink. Girls like it, and uh, <laughs> that makes the guys like it even more. <laughs> and so are you a native of Chillicothe? Actually, I was born and raised in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, which is 60 miles south. Okay. And so did you guys invent mayonnaise or something in Excelsior Springs? uh, Excelsior is the valley of vitality. We uh, have uh, seven different kinds of mineral springs. So that's where you can clear your head after uh, drinking? You've got a little calcium water, and uh, you don't want to drink the sulfur saline unless you really want to get cleaned out. So, Rico, Jim's bar is actually in an old train station, All right. which is right across the street from where the bakery that first sliced bread once stood. Really? Yeah, they would slice the bread, and they'd bring it over to the station to distribute by train. Convenient. Yeah. And now it's the place where hangovers are distributed. <laughs> exactly. That's nice. It's the place that makes it so your stomach can only handle plain white toast. That's perfect. It's a circle. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> our website is the greatest thing since the internet sort of happened. <laughs> 1999's internet. You'll find all our cocktail recipes there, including another sliced bread-inspired cocktail from Tony Guybe, a bartender at Washington Food and Drink, another bar in Chillicothe, Missouri. Hint, it's a BLT martini. Oh, man. It's another shortcut. Dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is street artist and graphic designer Shepard Ferry. He created the iconic Barack Obama Hope poster and those Andre the Giant Obey stickers you'll find plastered on street signs all over the world. He is currently featured in the huge Art of the Streets exhibit in and around the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. And Shepard, welcome. Thank you. 
you got your start putting up your sticker art illegally, basically everywhere you could. Now your work is shown in major museums. You're an extremely successful graphic artist, but you still go out and get arrested or at least have warrants issued because you insist on putting up your art illegally in public places. Why do that? I still believe in doing a lot of work on the street because I think the way that work on the street affects the viewer firsthand is very, very powerful. And secondly, I think that the idea that you're either underground and cool and keeping it real or you're engaging the mainstream and you've sold out and you've corrupted your ideals, this is not real. I now have created cultural currency with what I do. I can make money from this, which means I can spend more money on charities, political campaigns, street art, all the things that have a lot of value to me that when I was poor and powerless, I couldn't do. These are things that I want to say can coexist. I know, though, the more jaded critics among us would say that that is a very conscious attempt to prove that you're keeping it real. You have to sort of like keep your cultural currency high by continuing to do illegal stuff. It's a lot bigger of a risk now. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't really tried to weigh it out in terms of whether I think I'll sell more t-shirts or posters, but I know that I might end up uh, having my wife divorce me. I mean, there's a lot at stake for me, um, but it, it's it's really about my passion and, and my belief in what I, in what I do. All right. I do have to ask the Andre the Giant sticker. For those who've never seen it, it features a, an image of Andre the Giant, something that you put up in college and people around the world just sort of ran with it and have been putting up those stickers all over the place for decades. Did you ever meet Andre the Giant? I never met Andre the Giant, and I loved the movie The Princess Bride, and I thought that Andre was this really interesting character in that he played a villain in wrestling, but he seemed like a really sweet guy, and, you know, duality or dichotomy is something that I'm really fascinated by, So, and also that things aren't exactly what they seem. Andre seemed to intrigue people, and that was valuable for my sticker, but it, the campaign really is, is very little about wrestling or Andre the Giant at this point. Of course, but like, what is that like, that this guy that you never met like, is in some way responsible for your career? Did he, do you think he even knew about it? I don't, because he died in 93 and my, my project was still very underground at that point, I doubt he even knew about it. But if he were around, I would definitely want to reach out to him and thank him. Um, Rowdy Roddy Piper from the movie They Live, which was the movie that inspired my use of the word obey, signed a, a publicity still for me. Roddy Piper, also a pro wrestler. I guess he likes what I've done. Um, People in Radio Land cannot see the huge smile that you're smiling right now at the thought of that. Uh Two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Have you met Obama? <laughs> now, you actually were in contact with the Obama campaign to some extent over the Hope I, poster. I was, but it wasn't commissioned by the Obama campaign, and it wasn't done in conjunction with them. I just had their blessing to do it. All along, I thought I've been arrested at that point 15 times. Um, I'm probably not somebody they really want to strongly associate themselves with. Um, I did end up meeting Obama at some fundraisers because the money made from the Obama posters, I donated to the campaign. So that meant I was invited to these fundraising things. And, oh, you know, Obama was very nice. He was pleasant. But, but you know, J.J. Abrams was behind me in line. You get your 30 seconds when he starts looking over your shoulder it's time for J.J. Abrams to get a turn, and um, that's good enough for me. All right, our second question. Tell us something we don't know. 
probably very few people would know that my family was on the cover of Red Book magazine in 1973 as the All-American Southern Family. <laughs> really? Feature with you? Yeah, with me uh, as, as a three-year-old. My parents got married when they were 19. My dad was captain of the football team. My, my mom was head cheerleader. Charleston, South Carolina, I grew up. I don't think many people would um, would expect me to come from those circumstances. What do they think of you know your career trajectory? Well, for years, my dad said, stop wasting money on stickers and putting them on other people's property. <laughs> so, Rico, I actually think getting arrested is pretty all-American, you know? That's true. Martin Luther King. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Willie Nelson. And boom, that's, that's America right there. That pretty much covers it. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you have the right to post your star-spangled mugshots on our Facebook page. They will be used against you. Facebook.com slash Dinner Party Download. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, this week I'm going to talk about how food enthusiasts, yeah. foodies, some would call them, uh, how they can waste time productively. Okay, isn't that basically what our show is about? Yes. <laughs> what have we been doing for the last 10 years? Yes, minutes? it is, but this is something they can do while listening to us. Mm. It's a website created by the New York Public Library, and it's called What's on the Menu. Okay. And basically, it's a humongous collection of historical restaurant menus that have been digitized, okay? All right. Which is cool, but here's the cooler part. It's set up so visitors can help the library archive this stuff by transcribing the names of the dishes that they see on each menu. So they have scans of the menus, mm -hmm. but they need people to type in what the menus say to make them searchable. Exactly. So it's kind of like a, it feels like a video game for foodies. It's, it's, what it feels like is that they want us to do their work for them. You're right, yeah, actually. <laughs> it's basically this Tom Sawyer situation going on. Do we get <laughs> minimum wage for that? You get fines waived. Perhaps. And that's nice. I'm kidding. But, you know, to see if people were actually falling for this, I spoke with Rebecca Fetterman, who's in charge of the project, and Michael Inman. He's a curator for the library's rare books division. Right. And I asked them how people are responding. They love it. Within 24 hours, we had already received an email from somebody who wanted to put together a transcription party and create <laughs> some of the meals that were appearing on these menus and have her friends over and just put out some computers or have people bring their laptops and they just get to work. As of this morning, you have almost half a million dishes transcribed from over 8,000 menus. That's a pretty large number, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's the project has been successful beyond anything I think even we initially uh, envisioned. There is something that's very strangely addictive about it, um, yeah. sitting there and transcribing these menus. Yeah. I, I'm not even prepared for this interview because I just zoned out and transcribed three menus. So <laughs> I'm just winging it right now. <laughs> but why, what, what do you think makes this so fascinating for people to look through old menus? And then my other question is, why would people collect these in the first place? I think people find them interesting for a variety of reasons. We have uh, historians, cultural historians, culinary historians who look at them. We have novelists who mm -hmm. are looking at them for historical details. How much a beer cost in New York in 1935? Huh. A number of years ago, we had a researcher who came in who, for several weeks, looked at uh, New York City restaurant menus from the 1880s and 1890s. And we finally learned that he was looking at the prevalency of certain types of fish, um, how often they appeared on a, on a menu, and huh. the price of the fish. And from that, he was able to extrapolate the fish populations off the, the coast of the eastern seaboard during that time period, which, you know, we thought was really fascinating and uh, is something that, you know, we never would have thought of, which I guess sort of segues then into your, your second question, which was why do we even collect these? Of course, you know, we collect them for 
those reasons that I just spoke of. But there's also, uh, the, we collect it for the reason that we're simply, we're not sure how these things will be used in the future. Have you had a chance to look at any of the menus? Uh, did any, th- any kind of outrageous foods or interesting things pop up that you found surprising? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that always surprises me is not really so much specific items or dishes. Rather, it's, you know, looking at menus from, say, 100 years ago. I'm always just sort of surprised by how rich the food is and, you know, how there are these multiple courses that just seemingly go on and on and on, thinking, you know, goodness, how did people, you know, survive these meals, which must have, last, have lasted hours. And um, goodness knows, you can sort of feel your arteries hardening as you read the menus because they're just so incredibly rich. Some of these menus even have cigars on them as part of the dessert menu. Yeah, we have a lot of menus that we call testimonial dinners. So it'll be from a specific event honoring a person or an institution or an organization. And they'll often be wine pairings and cigars and toasts. And there's a lot of other information on the menu besides the food. That's interesting. There's so much you can learn from flipping through these and so many food items I'd never even heard of. One that caught my eye earlier was the French ice bomb a la Fata Morgana. (laughs) which just <laughs> just sounds incredible. You must be aware that your project could fuel the already raging retro food phenomena. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. So, Rico, obviously they figured out a way to have people do their job for them. Yeah. I think we should do the same thing. You know, we can start a bad pun database. <laughs> we'll need volunteers to record themselves <laughs> saying stuff. Good. And we could get a robot to ask our two standard questions. That would work. I've been wanting to do that for forever. <laughs> In fact, ladies and gentlemen, this could be the last time you hear us on this show. It's been a lot of fun. Since we're leaving, we'd like to thank Jackson Musker, Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, and Ellen Gettler. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from your weekend dinner parties. The band's name is Ty Seagull, and the song is called You Make the Sun Fry. Bon appétit.
I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And thanks for listening to our Oddcast. <laughs> Oddcast. Tell us something we don't know.